here are some select sections from the Wikipedia article titled Cashmere Wool. Cashmere wool, usually simply known as cashmere, is a fiber obtained from cashmere goats and other types of goat. Common usage defines the fiber as wool, but it is finer and softer than sheep's wool. Some say it is hair, but cashmere requires the removal of hair from the wool. The word cashmere is an old spelling of the Kashmir northernmost geographical region of South Asia. Kashmir is finer, stronger, lighter, softer, and approximately three times more insulating than sheep wool. In the United States, under the U.S. Wool Products Labeling Act of 1939, as amended, states that a wool or textile product may be labeled as containing cashmere only if one such wool product is the fine, dehaired undercoat fibers produced by a cashmere goat. Two, the average diameter of the fiber of such wool product does not exceed 19 microns. And three, such wool product does not contain more than 3% by weight of cashmere fibers with average diameters that exceed 30 microns. The average fiber diameter may be subject to a coefficient of variation around the mean that shall not exceed 24%. Cashmere wool fiber for clothing and other textile articles is obtained from the neck region of cashmere and other goats. Historically, fine-haired cashmere goats have been called Capra Argus Langage, as if they were a subspecies of the domestic goat Capra Argus. However, they are now more commonly considered part of the domestic goat subspecies Capra Agacris Argus. Cashmere goats produce a double fleece that consists of a fine, soft undercoat or underdown of hair 
and a straighter and much coarser outer coating of hair called guard hair. For the fine underdown to be sold and processed further, it must be dehaired. Dehairing is a mechanical process that separates the coarse hairs from the fine hair. After dehairing, the resulting cashmere is ready to be dyed and converted into textile yarn, fabrics, and garments. Cashmere is collected during the spring molting season when the goats naturally shed their winter coat. In the northern hemisphere, the goats molt as early as March and as late as May. In some regions, the mixed mass of down and coarse hair is removed by hand with a coarse comb that pulls tufts of fiber from the animal as the comb is raked through the fleece. The collected fiber then has a higher yield of pure cashmere after the fiber has been washed and de-aired. The long, coarse guard hair is then typically clipped from the animal and is often used for brushes, interfacings, and other non-apparel uses. Animals in Iran, Afghanistan, New Zealand, and Australia are typically shorn of their fleece, resulting in a higher coarse hair content and lower pure cashmere yield. In America, the most popular method is combing. The process takes up to two weeks, but with a trained eye for when the fiber is releasing, it is possible to comb the fibers out in about a week. China has become the largest producer of raw cashmere, and their clip is estimated at 10,000 metric tons per year in hair. Mongolia follows with 7,400 tons in hair as of 2014, while Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, Kyrgyzstan, and other Central Asian republics produce lesser amounts. The annual world clip is estimated to be between 15,000 and 20,000 tons in hair. Pure cashmere resulting from removing animal grease, dirt, and coarse hairs from the fleece is estimated at about 
6,500 tons. Ultra-fine cashmere, or pashmina, is still produced by communities in Indian Kashmir, but it's a rarity and high price, along with political instability in the region, make it very hard to source and to regulate quality. It is estimated that on average yearly production per goat is 150 grams, or about one-third of a pound. Pure cashmere can be dyed and spun into yarns and knitted into jumpers, also known as sweaters, or hats, gloves, socks, and other clothing, or woven into fabrics, then cut and assembled into garments, such as outer coats, jackets, trousers, pajamas, scarves, blankets, and other items. Fabric and garment producers in Scotland, Italy, and Japan have long been known as market leaders. In the United States, the town of Oxbridge, Massachusetts, was an incubator for the cashmere wool industry and had the first power looms for woolens and the first manufacture of satinettes. Capron Mill had the first power looms in 1820. However, it burned on July 21st, 2007 in the Burnett Mill Fire. There are four types of cashmere fiber. Raw cashmere is fiber that has not been processed and is essentially straight from the animal. Processed cashmere is fiber that has been through the processes of dehairing, washing, carding, and is ready either to spin or to knit, crochet, or weave. Virgin cashmere is new fiber made into yarns, fabrics, or garments for the first time. And lastly, recycled cashmere is fibers reclaimed from scraps or fabrics that were previously woven or felted and may or may not have been previously used by the consumer from various parts of the world. And now for the history of cashmere. Cashmere 
has been manufactured in Mongolia, Nepal, and Kashmir for thousands of years. The fiber is also known as pasham, which is Persian for wool, or pashmina for its use in the handmade shawls of Kashmir. References to woolen shawls appear in texts surviving from between the 3rd century BC and the 11th century AD. However, the founder of the Kashmir wool industry is traditionally thought to have been the 15th century ruler of Kashmir, Zain ul Abidin, who introduced weavers from Turkestan. Other sources consider that Kashmir crafts were introduced by Mir Sayyid Ali Hamadani. In the 14th century, Mir Ali Hamadani came to Kashmir along with 700 craftsmen from parts of Persia. When he came to Ladakh, the homeland of Kashmir goats, for the first time in history, he found that the Ladakh goats produced soft wool. He took some of the wool and made socks and gave them as a gift to the king of Kashmir, Sultan Kudabdin. Afterwards, Amadani suggested to the king that they start a shawl weaving industry in Kashmir using this wool. UNESCO reported in 2014 that Ali Amadani was one of the principal historical figures who shaped the culture of Kashmir, both architecturally and also through the flourishing of arts and crafts, and hence economy in Kashmir. The skills and knowledge that he brought to Kashmir gave rise to an entire industry. Trading in commercial quantities of raw Kashmir between Asia and Europe began with Valérie Audrisset, S.A., in Louviers, France, which claimed to be the first European company to commercially spin Kashmir. The down was imported from Tibet through Kazan, the capital of the Russian province of Volga, and was used in France to create imitation woven shawls. Unlike the cashmere shawls, the French shawls had a different pattern on each side. The imported cashmere was spread out on large sieves and beaten with sticks. <laughs> 
fibers and clear away the dirt. After opening, the cashmere was washed and children removed the coarse hair. The down was then carded and combed using the same methods used for worsted spinning. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, cashmere had a thriving industry of producing shawls from goat down imported from Tibet and Tartary through Ladakh. The down trade was controlled by treaties signed as a result of previous wars. The shawls were introduced into Western Europe when the general in chief of the French campaign in Egypt sent one to Paris. The shawl's arrival is said to have created an immediate sensation and plans were put in place to start manufacturing the product in France. In 1799, at his factory in Reims, William Louis Tarnay, the leading woman's manufacturer in France under Napoleon, began to produce imitation India shawls using the wool of Spanish merino sheep. By 1811, with government assistance, Tanu also began experimenting with the production of real India shawls using what he called laine de pairs. In other words, the down or duvet of Tibetan cashmere goats. In 1818, Tarnu resolved to help establish herds of cashmere goats in France. A famous expedition to Persia was organized, led by the Orientalist and diplomat Pierre Amadi Chabru to be financed in part by the French government. Of the acquired herd of 1,500 animals, only 256 arrived safely in the spring of 1819 at Marcel's in Toulon via the Crimea. About 100 of the cashmere goats were then purchased by the French government and sent to the royal sheep farm at Perpignan. The remainder, about 180, including newborns, went to Tarnu's property at Saint-Wynne outside Paris. Although Tarnu had little success getting small farmers to add cashmeres to their sheep herds, a few wealthy landowners were willing 
with the goats. For example, Ternu's herd was seen in 1823 by C.T. Tower of Weald Hall, Essex, England. Tower purchased two female and two male goats and took them back to England, where in 1828 he was awarded a gold medal by the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce for rearing a herd of cashmere goats. Also, a few of Ternu's goats were purchased for a model farm at Greenon, near Versailles, run by M. Polinsu. Polinsu crossbred the cashmeres with Angora goats to improve the down for spinning and weaving. This cashmere Angora herd was seen by William Riley of New South Wales in 1828 and again in 1831 when Riley purchased 13 of the goats for transshipment to Australia. At the time, the average production of the Polinsu herd was 16 ounces or 500 grams of down. Ternu's herd at St. Boone still numbered 150 when the famous industrialist died in 1833. The herd at Burpignan died out by 1829. By 1830, weaving cashmere shawls with French-produced yarn had become an important Scottish industry. The Scottish Board of Trustees for the Encouragement of Arts and Manufactures offered a 300-pound sterling reward to the first person who could spin cashmere in Scotland based on the French system. Captain Charles Stuart Cochrane collected the required information while in Paris and received his Scottish patent for the process in 1831. In the autumn of 1831, he sold the patent to Henry Holdsworth and Sons of Glasgow. In 1832, Henry Holdsworth & Sons commenced the manufacture of yarn, and in 1833 received the reward. Dawson International claimed to have invented the first commercial de-airing machine in 1890, and from 1906 
they purchased cashmere from China, but were restricted to purchasing fiber from Beijing and Tianjin until 1978. In 1978, trade was liberalized and Dawson International began buying cashmere from many provinces. Many early textile centers developed as part of the American Industrial Revolution. Among them, the Blackstone Valley became a major contributor to the American Industrial Revolution. The town of Oaksbridge, Massachusetts became an early textile center in the Blackstone Valley, which was known for the manufacture of cashmere wool and satin nets. Austrian textile manufacturer Bernard Altman is credited with bringing cashmere to the United States of America on a mass scale beginning in 1947. The following are select sections from the two Wikipedia articles titled Chinchilla and Chinchiculture. Alright, first a summary about chinchillas. Chinchillas are two species of corpuscular rodents, slightly larger and more robust than ground squirrels. They are native to the Andes Mountains in South America and live in colonies called herds at high elevations up to 4,270 meters or 14,000 feet. Historically, chinchillas lived in an area that included parts of Bolivia, Peru, Argentina, and Chile, but today colonies in the wild are known only in Chile. Along with their relatives, the Sachas, they make up the family Chinchillidae. The chinchilla, whose name literally means clay, has the second densest fur of any land mammal, exceeded only by the sea otter, and is named after the chincha people of the Andes, who once wore its dense, velvet-like fur. By the end of the 19th century, chinchillas had become quite rare to hunting for their ultra-soft fur. Most chinchillas currently 
used by the fur industry for clothing and other accessories are farm-raised. The next sections are about the two species of chinchilla, their distribution, and their habitat. species of chinchilla are chinchilla chinchilla and chinchilla lanagara. Chinchilla chinchilla has a shorter tail, a thicker neck and shoulders, and shorter ears than chinchilla lanagara. The former species is currently facing extinction. The latter, though rare, can be found in the wild. Domesticated chinchillas are thought to have come from the chinchilla lanagara species. Formerly, chinchillas occupied the coastal regions, hills, and mountains of Chile, Peru, Argentina, and Bolivia, but over-exploitation caused the downturn of these populations. As early as 1914, one scientist claimed that the species was headed for extinction. Five years of fieldwork published in 2007 in Jujuy province, Argentina, failed to find a single specimen. Populations in Chile were thought extinct by 1953, but the animal was found to inhabit an area in the Antofagasta region in the late 1900s and early 2000s. The animal may be extinct in Bolivia and Peru, though one specimen found in a restaurant in Cerro de Pasco may hail from a native population. In their native habitats, Chinchillas live in burrows or crevices in rocks. They are agile jumpers and can jump up to six feet or 1.8 meters. Predators in the wild include birds of prey, skunks, felines, snakes, and canines. Chinchillas have a variety of defensive tactics, including spraying urine and releasing fur if bitten. In the wild, chinchillas have been observed eating plant leaves, fruits, seeds, and small insects. 
in nature. Chinchillas live in social groups that resemble colonies, but are properly called herds. Herd sizes can range from 14 members up to 100 members. This is both for social interaction as well as protection from predators. They can breed at any time of the year. Their gestation period is 111 days longer than most rodents. Due to this long pregnancy, chinchillas are born fully furred and with eyes open. Litters are usually small in number, predominantly two. Both species of chinchilla are currently listed as endangered by the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species due to a severe population loss approximated at a 90% global population loss over the last 15 years. This severe population decline has been caused by chinchilla hunting by humans. Until 1996, they were listed as least concern on the red list. In 2006, they were listed as threatened by 2008 as critically endangered, and in 2016, they were reclassified as endangered due to limited recovery in some areas. The next sections are about their roles with humans as fur, as pets, and their use in research. The international trade in chinchilla fur goes back to the 16th century. Their fur is popular in the fur trade due to its extremely soft feel which is caused by the sprouting of 60 hairs on average from each hair follicle. The color is usually very even, which makes it ideal for small garments or the lining of large garments. Though some large garments can be made entirely from the fur, a single full-length coat made from chinchilla fur may require as many as 150 belts, as chinchillas are relatively small. Their use for fur led to the extinction of one species and put serious pressure on the other two. Though it is illegal to hunt wild chinchillas, the wild animals are now on the verge of becoming extinct because of continued illegal hunting. Domesticated chinchillas 
are still bred for fur. Chinchillas are popular pets, but require much care. They should only be purchased by experienced pet owners who are aware of their needs. Chinchillas must have extensive exercise and dental care due to their teeth continually growing all throughout their lifespan. And since they lack the ability to sweat, temperatures need to be carefully controlled. They should be kept in an environment of 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 16 to 21 degrees Celsius. Always locate their cage in a well-lit area, but do not place the cage in direct sunlight or in drafts. Animals instinctively clean their fur by taking dust baths in which they roll around in special dust made of fine pumice a few times a week. They do not bathe in water. If they get wet, they should be dried off immediately or else their fur will grow fungus and they can possibly get a skin infection. Their thick fur resists parasites, such as fleas, and reduces loose dander. Chinchillas have been used in research since the 1950s. Since the 1970s, the prime interest in chinchillas by researchers is their auditory system. Other research fields in which chinchillas are used as an animal model include the study of Chagas disease, gastrointestinal diseases, pneumonia, and listeriosis, as well as Yersinia and Pseudomonas infections. Next sections are about the health and diseases of chinchillas. Chinchillas live active lives and can recover well from physical injury. Treating any bone fractures or wounds in chinchillas is done much in the same way as with any other animal. In treating they should be clean and ointments used for simple wounds. If a wound is dressed, then it may be necessary to put the animal in a neck collar to prevent licking at the wound. Fractures are problematic because chinchillas will want to sit on their hind legs and eat with their front paws. So many types of injuries will disturb their natural eating behavior. An animal with a cast may be comforted by hand feeding 
if a limb fracture does not heal properly, a vet may recommend an amputation. Chinchillas are able to live happily in captivity if an injury results in the need for amputation of an arm or leg. Chinchilla breeders sometimes report seeing their animals have convulsions. Typically, this happens only irregularly and then only for a few seconds and not more than a few minutes at the most. Convulsions are a symptom that can have many causes, including a brain problem such as hemorrhaging, a vitamin or dietary element deficiency in the diet, or some kind of nervous system injury. If convulsions are observed after chinchillas mate, then it is not unlikely that they are related to a circulatory problem. As a general treatment for all kinds of convulsions, taking extra care to keep the animal's stress lowered is the best response. Giving vitamin B, cardiac medication, calcium injection may be indicated. Some chinchillas or kept in groups have stress convulsions during feeding if they see other chinchillas getting food first. It helps the animals to be fed their food in a way that allows them to either be first or to not see others eating they have to wait their turn. Infectious diseases are better prevented than treated. Prevention strategies should include keeping the chinchilla accommodations clean, giving them a climate matching their natural one, providing an optimum diet, and immunization when appropriate. Listeriosis is not a typical chinchilla disease, but in group housing conditions, it can spread as a digestive tract disease in a community. If it is identified, then all chinchillas in the community should be treated. Pasteurella can be contracted from food and then transmitted among a group of chinchillas. Symptoms include apathy, digestive disorder, and fever. Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections are widely distributed in nature and can affect chinchillas like many other animals. They can cause wide deaths in populations of chinchillas and spontaneous abortion in pregnant chinchillas. Respiratory tract infections can be caused by many pathogens, but regardless of cause, usually result in difficult breathing and a nasal discharge. Young chinchillas 
infected, and these infections are unlikely to result in an epidemic, even if transmissible. Gastrointestinal disorders are observed as either constipation or diarrhea. These are almost always the result of a problem with the diet, but if the diet is optimal, they could be the symptom of an infectious disease. Problems with diet should be excluded before other treatments, and perhaps the regular food stock should be discarded and replaced on the presumption that it is spoiled. Constipation in chinchillas is difficult to observe in groups because it may not be obvious that an animal is not contributing to the population's waste. If it is identified, mild treatments include feeding paraffin as an oil to soften the feces. An experienced hand may massage the chinchilla to assist with the bowel movement. Chinchillas are easily distressed, and when they are unhappy, they may have physical symptoms. In protecting their health, care should be taken not to disturb them, and lots of things can disturb them. Humans who monitor the chinchillas can often have intuitive ideas about recent changes which might be disturbing chinchillas who exhibit new symptoms, as chinchillas are sensitive enough to physically react when something new is bothering them. It is not appropriate to suddenly change a chinchilla's regular diet, especially when they are sick, as this upsets them. Sick chinchillas may quit eating if they are stressed, which can make them even more weak. Chinchillas, which live in communities and are breeding, must not be disturbed in February to March or from August to September, as they are especially sensitive in these breeding seasons. Chinchillas are social animals likely to be upset to have their breeding mate changed in breeding season. They are known to be disturbed by a change of diet in these times, so care should be taken by breeders that the food given at the beginning of these times is in large supply and can be given without change for the duration of the season. The next sections are about the Chinchu people, their culture, and their history. So as a reminder, the Chinchilla is named after the Chinchu people of the Andes because they were known for wearing the chinchilla fur. Right, I'll 
start with a summary. The Chincha culture consisted of a Native American or Indian people living near the Pacific Ocean in southwest Peru. The Chincha kingdom and their culture flourished in the late intermediate period, 900 Common Era to 1450 Common Era, also known as the Regional States Period of Pre-Columbian Peru. They became part of the Inca Empire around 1480. They were prominent as seagoing traders and lived in a large and fertile oasis valley. La Sentinella is an archaeological ruin associated with the Chincha. The Chincha disappeared as a people a few decades after the Spanish conquest of Peru, which began in 1532. They died in large numbers from European diseases and the political chaos which accompanied and followed the Spanish invasion. The Chincha gave their name to the Chincha Yusuyo region, the Chincha Islands, to the animal, the Chinchilla, which literally means little Chincha, and the city of Chincha Alta. The word Chinche or Chincha means jaguar or ocelot in Chincha, Quechua. The next sections are about the history of the Chincha people. Human beings have lived along the Peruvian coast for at least 10,000 years. The earliest settlers were probably fishermen, exploiting the rich maritime resources of the Humboldt Current. Irrigation agriculture in river valleys developed later. The first settled communities known in the Chincha Valley date from about 800 BCE and belong to the Paracas culture. Later, from 100 BCE to 800 CE, the Chincha Valley was influenced by the Ika-Nazca culture. The Chincha Valley was also influenced and possibly under the control of the Wari Empire from about 500 CE to 1000 CE. Between the 9th and 10th centuries, there was a shift in the lifestyle and culture of the coastal inhabitants, with different techniques and styles appearing at the shore region. Some scholars 
Others claim that the change was the product of a migratory wave of unknown origin, identifying this culture as the pre-Ginger culture, the rudimentary pre-Ginger culture relied extensively on fishing and shell gathering. In the 11th century, the sophisticated and warlike culture known as the Jinja began, possibly the product of a migratory wave from the highlands. The Jinja had developed systems of architecture, agriculture, and irrigation. The Jinja culture came to dominate the whole valley. The Jinja worshipped a jaguar god and believed themselves to be descended from jaguars who gave them their warlike and dominating tendencies. The Jinja fertilized their fields with dead birds and guano, and this knowledge was passed on to later peoples. The Jinja merchants maintained trade routes by land with herds of camelids used as beasts of burden. Moreover, the Jinja learned seafaring skills and new technologies such as raft construction with balsa logs, being the largest capable of carrying 20 people in addition to a large cargo, and the use of the sail, only known by some cultures of Ecuador and Peru in the pre-Columbian era of the Americas, allowing the Chincha to have extensive maritime trade routes and perhaps traveled as far as Central America by boat or raft. According to an early Spanish chronicle, the population of Chincha consisted of 30,000 heads of households, among which were 12,000 agriculturalists, 10,000 fishermen, and 6,000 traders. The numbers suggest a total population of more than 100,000 people under Chincha control, likely in a larger area than the Chincha Valley itself. Several 16th century Spaniards recorded Chincha history from Indian informants. Although those chronicles are often contradictory, the broad outlines of Chincha history can be discerned. The Chinchas were most famous for maritime commerce. Pedro Pizarro said that the Atahualpa claimed that the ruler of Chincha controlled 100,000 sea-going rafts, undoubtedly an exaggeration, but illustrating the importance of Chincha in trade. Voyage
bridges by boats raft up and down the Pacific coast from southern Colombia to northern Chile, possibly as far as Mexico, or a long-standing practice, the trade largely being in luxury items such as worked gold and silver and ritually important spondylus and strombus seashells. The Spanish first appeared in the Chincha Valley in 1534, and a Dominican Roman Catholic mission was founded by 1542. With the arrival of the Spaniards, the population of Chincha declined precipitously, mostly due to European diseases and political turmoil. Demographers have estimated a 99% decline in population in the first 85 years of Spanish rule. Chincha never regained its earlier prominence. The following are select sections from the Wikipedia article titled Deep Sea Community. A deep sea community is any community of organisms associated by a shared habitat in the deep sea. Deep sea communities remained largely unexplored due to the technological and logistical challenges and expense involved in visiting this remote biome. Because of the unique challenges, particularly the high barometric pressure, extremes of temperature, and absence of light, it was long believed that little life existed in this hostile environment. Since the 19th century, however, Research has demonstrated that significant biodiversity exists in the deep sea. The three main sources of energy and nutrients for deep sea communities are marine snow, whale falls, and chemosynthesis at hydrothermal vents and cold seeps. In the 1870s, Sir Charles Thompson and colleagues aboard the Challenger expedition discovered many deep-sea creatures of widely varying types. The first discovery of any deep-sea chemosynthetic community including higher animals, was unexpectedly made at hydrothermal vents in the eastern Pacific Ocean 
during geological explorations. Two scientists, Jay Corliss and Jay Van Andel, first witnessed dense chemosynthetic clam beds from the submersible DSV Elvin on February 17, 1977, after their unanticipated discovery using a remote camera sled two days before. The Challenger Deep is the deepest survey point of all of the Earth's oceans. It is located at the southern end of the Mariana Trench near the Mariana Islands group. The depression is named after HMS Challenger, whose researchers made the first recordings of its depth on March 23, 7,000 meters. Nereus reached a depth of 10,902 meters at the Challenger Deep on May 31st, 2009. On June 1st, 2009, sonar mapping of the Challenger Deep indicated a maximum depth of 10,971 meters or 6.8 miles. The next sections are about the darkness and the hyperbaricity of the deep sea. can be conceptualized as being divided into various zones depending on depth 
and the presence or absence of sunlight. Nearly all life forms in the ocean depend on the photosynthetic activities of phytoplankton and other marine plants to convert carbon dioxide into organic carbon. Photosynthesis, in turn, requires energy from sunlight to drive the chemical reactions that produce organic carbon. The stratum of the water column up to which sunlight penetrates is referred to as the photic zone. This photic zone can be subdivided into two different vertical regions. The uppermost portion of the photic zone, where there is adequate light to support photosynthesis by phytoplankton and plants, is referred to as the euphotic zone, and also referred to as the epipelagic zone or surface zone. lower portion of the photic zone, where the light intensity is insufficient for photosynthesis, is called the dysphotic zone, which means poorly lit in Greek. The dysphotic zone is also referred to as the mesopelagic zone, or the twilight zone. Its lowermost boundary is at a thermocline of 12 degrees Celsius or 54 degrees Fahrenheit, which in the tropics generally lies between 200 and 1,000 meters. The euphotic zone is somewhat arbitrarily defined as extending from the surface to the depth where the light intensity is approximately 0.1 to 1% of surface sunlight irradiance, depending on season, latitude, and degree of water turbidity. In the clearest ocean water, the euphotic zone may extend to a depth of about 150 meters, or rarely up to 200 meters. Dissolved substances and solid particles absorb and scatter light, and in coastal regions, the high concentration of these substances causes light to be attenuated rapidly with depth. In such areas, the euphotic zone may be only a few tens of meters deep or less. The dysphotic zone, where light intensity is considerably less than 1% of surface irradiance 
extends from the base of the euphotic zone to about 1,000 meters, extending from the bottom of the photic zone down to the seabed is the aphotic zone, a region of perpetual darkness. Since the average depth of the ocean is about 4,300 meters, the photic zone represents only a tiny fraction of the ocean's total volume. However, due to its capacity for photosynthesis, the photic zone has the greatest biodiversity and biomass of all ocean zones. Nearly all primary production in the ocean occurs here. Any life forms present in the aphotic zone must either be capable of movement upwards through the water column into the photic zone for feeding or must rely on material sinking from above or must find another source of energy and nutrition such as occurs in chemosynthetic archaea found near hydrothermal vents and cold seeps. These animals have evolved to survive the extreme pressure of the subphotic zones. The pressure increases by about one atmosphere every 10 meters. To cope with the pressure, many fish are rather small, usually not exceeding 25 centimeters in length. Also, scientists have discovered that the deeper these creatures live, the more gelatinous their flesh and more minimal their skeletal structure. These creatures have also eliminated all excess cavities that would collapse under the pressure, such as swim bladders. Pressure is the greatest environmental factor acting on deep sea organisms. In the deep sea, Although most of the deep sea is under pressures between 200 and 600 atmospheres, the range of pressure is from 20 to 1,000 atmospheres. Pressure exhibits a great role in the distribution of deep sea organisms. Until recently, lacked detailed information on the direct effects of pressure on most deep-sea organisms, because virtually all organisms trawled from the deep-sea arrived at the surface dead 
or dying. With the advent of traps that incorporate a special pressure-maintaining chamber, undamaged, larger metazoan animals have been retrieved from the deep sea in good condition. Some of these have been maintained for experimental purposes and allowed more knowledge of the biological effects of pressure. The next sections are about the temperature and the salinity of the deep sea. The two areas of greatest and most rapid temperature change in the oceans are the transition zone between the surface waters and the deep waters, the thermocline, and the transition between the deep sea floor and the hot water flows at the hydrothermal vents. Thermoclimes vary in thickness from a few hundred meters to nearly a thousand meters. Below the thermocline, the water mass of the deep ocean is cold and far more homogeneous. Thermoclines are strongest in the tropics, where the temperature of the epipelagic zone is usually above 20 degrees Celsius. From the base of the epipelagic zone, the temperature drops over several hundred meters to 5 or 6 degrees Celsius at 1,000 meters. It continues to decrease to the bottom, but the rate is much slower. Below 3,000 to 4,000 meters, the water is isothermal. At any given depth, the temperature is practically unvarying over long periods of time. There are no seasonal temperature changes nor are there any annual changes. No other habitat on Earth has such a constant temperature. Hydrothermal vents are the direct contrast with constant temperature. In these systems, the temperature of the water as it emerges from the black smoker chimneys may be as high as 400 degrees Celsius. It is kept from boiling by the high hydrostatic pressure. While within a few meters, it may be back down to 2 to 4 degrees Celsius. Salinity is constant throughout the depths of the deep sea. There are two notable exceptions to this rule. The first exception is in the Mediterranean Sea. Water loss through 
evaporation greatly exceeds input from precipitation and river runoff. Because of this, salinity in the Mediterranean is higher than in the Atlantic Ocean. Evaporation is especially high in its eastern half, causing the water level to decrease and salinity to increase in this area. The resulting pressure gradient pushes relatively cool, low salinity water from the Atlantic Ocean across the basin. This water warms and becomes saltier as it travels eastward, then sinks in the region of the Levant and circulates westward to spill back into the Atlantic over the Strait of Gibraltar. The net effect of this is that at the Strait of Gibraltar, there is an eastward surface current of cold water of lower salinity from the Atlantic and a simultaneous westward current of warm saline water from the Mediterranean in the deeper zones. Once back in the Atlantic, this chemically distinct Mediterranean intermediate water can persist for thousands of kilometers away from its source. The second exception about salinity is in brine pools, which are large areas of brine on the seabed. These pools are bodies of water that have a salinity that is three to five times greater than that of the surrounding ocean. For deep sea brine pools, the source of the salt is the dissolution of large salt deposits through salt tectonics. The brine often contains high concentrations of methane, providing energy to chemosynthetic extremophiles that live in this specialized biome. Brine pools are also known to exist on the Antarctic continental shelf, where the source of brine is salt, excluded during formation of sea ice. Deep sea and Antarctic brine pools can be toxic to marine animals. Brine pools are sometimes called seafloor lakes because the dense brine creates a halo does not easily mix with overlying salt water. The high salinity raises the density of the brine, which creates a distinct surface and shoreline for the pool. 
Deep Sea or Deep Layer is the lowest layer in the ocean existing below the thermocline at a depth of 1,000 fathoms or 1,800 meters or more. The deepest part of the deep sea is the Mariana Trench, located in the western North Pacific. It is also the deepest point of the Earth's crust. It has a maximum depth of about 10.9 kilometers, which is deeper than the height of Mount Everest. In 1960, Don Walsh and Jacques Picard reached the bottom of the Mariana Trench in the Triste Bathyscaphe. The pressure is about 11,318 metric tons force per square meter, or 16,100 psi. The next sections are about the different zones of the deep sea. The mesopelagic zone is the upper section of the midwater zone and extends from 200 to 1,000 meters below sea level. This is colloquially known as the twilight zone, as light can still penetrate this layer, but it is too low to support photosynthesis. The limited amount of light however, can still allow organisms to see, and creatures with a sensitive vision can detect prey, communicate, and orient themselves using their sight. Organisms in this layer have large eyes to maximize the amount of light in the environment. Most mesopelagic fish make daily vertical migrations, moving at night into the epipelagic zone, often following similar migrations of zooplankton, and returning to the depths for safety during the day. These vertical migrations often occur over a large vertical distance and are undertaken with the assistance of a swim bladder. The swim bladder is inflated when the fish wants to move up and given the high pressures in the mesopelagic zone, this requires significant energy. As the fish ascends, the pressure in the swim bladder must adjust to prevent it from bursting. When the fish wants to return to the depths, the swim bladder is deflated. 
some mesopelagic fishes make daily migrations through the thermocline, where the temperature changes between 10 and 20 degrees Celsius, or 50 and 68 degrees Fahrenheit, thus displaying considerable tolerances for temperature change. Mesopelagic fish usually lack defensive spines and use color and bioluminescence to camouflage them from other fish. Ambush predators are dark, black, or red, since the longer red wavelengths of light do not reach the deep sea. Red effectively functions the same as black. Migratory forms use countershaded silvery colors. On their bellies, they often display photopores producing low-grade light. For a predator from below, looking upwards, this bioluminescence camouflages the silhouette of the fish. However, some of these predators have yellow lenses that filter the red-deficient ambient light, leaving the bioluminescence visible. The bathyal zone is the lower section of the midwater zone and encompasses the depths of 1,000 to 4,000 meters. Light does not reach this zone, giving it its nickname, the Midnight Zone. It is less densely populated than the Epipelagic Zone, despite being much larger. Fish find it hard to live in this zone as there is crushing pressure, cold temperatures at 4 degrees Celsius or 39 degrees Fahrenheit, a low level of dissolved oxygen, and a lack of sufficient nutrients. What little energy is available in the bathopelagic zone filters from above in the form of detritus, fecal material, and the occasional invertebrate or mesopelagic fish. About 20% of the food that has its origins in the epipelagic zone falls down to the mesopelagic zone, but only about 5% filters down to the bathypelagic zone. The fish that do live there may have reduced or completely lost their gills, kidneys, hearts, and swim bladders, have a slimy instead of scaly skin, and have a weak skeletal and muscular build. Most of the animals that live in the bathyl zone 
are invertebrates, such as sea sponges, cephalopods, and echinoderms, with the exception of very deep areas of the ocean, the bathyal zone usually reaches the benthic zone on the seafloor. The abyssal zone remains in perpetual darkness at a depth of 4,000 to 6,000 meters or 13,000 to 20,000 feet. The only organisms that inhabit this zone are chemotrophs and predators that can withstand immense pressures, sometimes as high as 76 megapascals or 750 atmospheres or 11,000 psi. The Hadal Zone named after Hades, the Greek god of the underworld, is a zone designated for the deepest trenches in the world, reaching depths of below 6,000 meters or 20,000 feet. The deepest point in the Hadal Zone is the Marianas Trench, which descends to 10,911 meters and has a pressure of 110 megapascals or 1,100 atmospheres or 16,000 psi. The last sections are about the energy sources of the deep sea. The upper photic zone of the ocean is filled with particle organic matter and is quite productive, especially in the coastal areas and the upwelling areas. However, most particle organic matter is small and light it may take hundreds or even thousands of years for these particles to settle through the water column into the deep ocean. This time delay is long enough for the particles to be remineralized and taken up by organisms in the food webs. Scientists at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution conducted an experiment three decades ago in the deep Sargasso Sea looking at the rate of sinking. They found what became known as marine snow in which the particle organic matter are repackaged into much larger particles sink at much greater speed, therefore falling like snow. Because of the sparsity of food, the organisms 
living on, and in the bottom are generally opportunistic. They have special adaptations for this extreme environment. Rapid growth affect larval dispersal mechanism and the ability to use a transient food resource. One typical example is wood-borne bivalves, which bore into wood and other plant remains and are fed on the organic matter from the remains. For the deep-sea ecosystem, the death of a whale is the most important event. A dead whale can bring hundreds of tons of organic matter to the bottom. A sinking dead whale is therefore referred to as whale fall, and a whale fall community progresses through three stages. The first stage is a mobile scavenger stage. Big and mobile deep sea animals arrive at the site almost immediately after whales fall in the bottom. Amphipods, crabs, sleeper sharks, and hagfish are all scavengers. The second stage is the opportunistic stage. Organisms arrive which colonize the bones and surrounding sediments that have been contaminated with organic matter from the carcass and any other tissue left by the scavengers. One genus is Osidax, a tube worm. The larva is born without sex. The surrounding environment determines the sex of the larva. When a larva settles on a whale bone, it turns into a female. When a larva settles on or in a female, it turns into a dwarf male. One female Osidax can carry more than 200 of these male individuals in its oviduct. The third stage is the sulfophilic stage. Further decomposition of bones and seawater sulfate reduction happen at this stage. Bacteria create a sulfide-rich environment analogous to hydrothermal vents. Polynoids bivalves, gastropods, and other sulfur-loving creatures move in. Hydrothermal vents were discovered in 1977 by scientists from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. So far, the discovered hydrothermal vents are all located at the boundaries of plates. New 
basin material is being made in regions such as the Mid-Atlantic Ridge as tectonic plates pull away from each other. Cold sea water circulates down through cracks between two plates and heats up as it passes through hot rock. Minerals and sulfides are dissolved into the water during the interaction with the rock. Eventually, the hot solutions emanate from an active subseafloor rift, creating a hydrothermal vent. Chemosynthesis of bacteria provide the energy and organic matter for the whole food web in vent ecosystems. Giant tube worms can grow to 2.4 meters or 7 feet 10 inches tall because of the richness of nutrients. Over 300 new species have been discovered at hydrothermal vents. These vents are entire ecosystems independent from sunlight and may be the first evidence that the Earth can support life without the sun. A cold seep, sometimes called a cold vent, is an area of the ocean floor where hydrogen sulfide, methane, and other hydrogen-rich fluid seepage occurs. Often, in the form of a brine pool. The following are select sections from the Wikipedia article titled Organisms at High Altitude. I'll begin with an overview. Organisms can live at high altitude either on land oxygen availability and decreased temperature make life at such altitudes challenging, though many species have been successfully adapted by considerable physiological changes. As opposed to short-term changes, high-altitude adaptation means irreversible evolved physiological responses to high-altitude environments associated with heritable behavioral and genetic changes. Among animals, only few mammals, such as the yak, Tibetan gazelle, llamas, mountain goats, and others, and certain birds, are known to have completely adapted to high-altitude environments. Human populations, such as some Tibetans, South Americans, and Ethiopians, 
which live at high altitudes, such as insects and other small creatures. The section begins with talking about these small invertebrates called tardigrades, but it doesn't provide a lot of information about what a tardigrade is. So here's a little side note. Tardigrades are also known as water bears or moss piglets. They're about half a millimeter in length. And you might have heard of these very small creatures before because they were the first animals to survive in space. Alright, back to the article. Tardigrades live over the entire world, including the high Himalayas. Tardigrades are also able to survive temperatures of close to absolute zero. Temperatures as high as 151 Celsius or 304 degrees Fahrenheit. They can also survive radiation that would kill other animals. And they can also live almost a decade without water. Tardigrades have also returned alive from studies in which they've been exposed to the vacuum of outer space in low Earth orbit. Other invertebrates with high altitude habitats are a spider that lives in the Himalaya range at altitudes of up to 6,700 meters or 22,000 feet. It feeds on stray insects that are blown up the mountain by the wind. There are also insects called snow fleas, which live in the Himalayas. They are active in the dead of winter because its blood contains a compound similar to antifreeze. Some of these allow themselves to become dehydrated instead preventing the formation of ice crystals within their body. In 2008, a colony of bumblebees was discovered on Mount Everest at more than 5,600 meters or 18,400 feet above sea level, the highest known altitude for an insect. In subsequent tests, some of the bees were still able to fly in a flight chamber, which recreated the thinner air of 9,000 meters, or 30,000 feet. Ballooning is the term that describes how spiders can disperse through the air. They emit some strains of silk which are caught by winds. Some spiders have been detected in atmospheric data balloons collecting air 
air samples. It's slightly less than 5 kilometers or 16,000 feet above sea level. Ballooning is the most common way for spiders to pioneer isolated islands and mountain tops. The next sections will cover fish and mammals. Fish at high altitudes have a lower metabolic rate, as has been shown by Highland West Slope cutthroat trout when compared to introduced lowland rainbow trout. There is also a general trend of smaller body sizes and lower species richness at high altitudes observed in aquatic invertebrates, likely due to lower oxygen partial pressures. These factors may decrease productivity in high altitude habitats, meaning there will be less energy available for consumption, growth, and activity, which provides an advantage to fish with lower metabolic demands. The naked carp can use the process called gill remodeling to increase oxygen uptake in low oxygen environments. Mammals are also known to reside at high altitude and exhibit a striking number of adaptations in terms of morphology, physiology, and behavior. The Tibetan Plateau has very few mammalian species, including wolf, Tibetan wild ass, Tibetan antelope, wild yak, snow leopard, Tibetan sandbox, gazelle, Himalayan brown bear, and water buffalo. These mammals can be broadly categorized based on their adaptability in high altitude into two broad groups. Those that can survive a wide range of high altitude regions are called Yuri Park and include Yak, Tibetan Gazelle, and Llamas. Stenopark animals are those with lesser ability to endure a range of differences in altitude. These include rabbits, mountain goats, sheep, and cats. Among domesticated animals, yaks are perhaps the highest dwelling animals. A number of rodents live at high altitudes, including deer mice, guinea pigs, and rats. Several mechanisms help them survive these harsh conditions, including altered genetics of the hemoglobin genes in guinea pigs and deer mice. Deer mice use a high percentage of fats as metabolic fuel to retain carbohydrates for 
bursts of energy. Other changes that occur in rodents at high altitude include increased breathing rate and altered shape of the lungs and heart, which allow for more efficient gas exchange and delivery. Lungs of high altitude mice are larger with more capillaries and their hearts have a heavier right ventricle which pumps blood to the lungs. The deer mouse is the best studied species other than humans in terms of high altitude adaptation. Measurement of food intake, gut mass, and cardiopulmonary organ mass indicated proportional increases in mice living at high altitudes, which in turn show that life at high altitudes demands higher levels of energy. Surprisingly, the deer mice native to Andes Islands are found to have relatively low hemoglobin content this is the protein that carries oxygen inside red blood cells. Instead, variations in the genes for the hemoglobin seem to be the basis for increased oxygen affinity of the hemoglobin and faster transport of oxygen. The Peruvian native species of mice have adapted to the high Andes by using more carbohydrates and have higher oxidative capacities of cardiac muscles compared to closely related low-altitude native species. This shows that island mice have evolved a metabolic process to economize oxygen usage for physical activities in the low oxygen conditions. Yak is the most important domesticated animal for some Tibetan islanders in China, as they are the primary source of milk, meat, and fertilizer. Unlike other yak or cattle species, which suffer from hypoxia in the Tibetan plateau, the Tibetan domestic yaks thrive only at high altitude and not in lowlands. Their physiology is well adapted to high altitudes, with proportionally larger lungs and heart than other cattle, as well as a greater capacity for transporting oxygen through their blood. In 2012, the complete genomic sequence of a female domestic yak was announced, providing important insights into adaptations at high altitude. For example, they found three genes that may play important roles in regulating the body's response to low oxygen, and five genes that were related to the optimization of the energy from the food scarcity in the extreme plateau. One gene 
as important functional consequences for oxygen affinity. In addition, there is strong divergence in body size in the Andes and adjacent lowlands. These changes have shaped distinct morphological and genetic divergence within South American cinnamon deal populations. Some species of Tibetan birds have also shown genetic changes related to cardiac function, adrenaline response, and steroid hormone production. Other animals that live at high altitudes in Tibet include the Himalayan jumping spider, some snakes, and some other reptiles and amphibians. This last section will be about plants. Many different plant species live in the high altitude environment. These include perennial grasses, sedges, forbs, cushion plants, mosses, and lichens. High altitude plants must adapt to the harsh conditions of the environment, which include low temperatures, dryness, ultraviolet radiation, and a short growing season. Trees cannot grow at high altitude because of cold temperature or lack of available moisture. The lack of trees causes an ecotone or boundary that is obvious to observers. This boundary is known as the tree line. The sandwort is the highest flowering plant in the world, occurring as high as 6,180 meters or 20,280 feet. And lastly, the highest altitude plant species is a moss that grows at 6,480 meters or 21,260 feet on Mount Everest. This concludes the Whisperpedia episode. Good night.